in uh, Chester Diocese, near where I grew up, uh, in Sale, uh, in near Chester as well. Uh, he's also... Um, are you putting your hand up to ask a question? Don't Just stretching, OK. Um, <laughs> I know you sometimes heckle from the back, so I've got to watch oh, you. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I thought would be interesting to have Rob for as well is that he is actually not only a member of General Synod, and so very important to you have to bow quite low, but he's also on something called the Diocese's Commission, which looks at all the dioceses and decides whether they're still worthy of having a bishop uh, whenever there's a vacancy and that sort of thing, and deciding on whether we should merge them and that sort of thing. So a very broad, overarching role of oversight. Uh, so he has an interesting angle on bishops and on oversight in the Church of England generally. Did I miss anything out that I ought to tell them about you? Chair of clergy in the in Chester Diocese as well for uh, three terms before you were then chucked out. And a question from the back. He's an assessor in the Convocation of York. An assessor in the Convocation of York. Um, would you like to tell us what that means? What is it? What is that? It's basically like the standing committee for the, when the clergy get together in the, uh, okay. uh, the, the the York Synod of Clergy. That's a deep concentration of power in your hands. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's rather intimidating. I'm sure you don't let it go to your head. Uh, that's very important. <laughs> and another question from the back. Uh, he's also a stealth archer on Skyrim. He's a stealth <laughs> archer on Skyrim. I'm so glad that you reminded us of that because I don't know what we would have done if we didn't have that information. It's very important to know. Yes, another question. I just want to know if I'm the only one who doesn't know what that last thing meant. No, I don't know. It's one of those things that you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, yeah. With the youth. It, it's, would someone like to explain? Robles, it's an ancient ecclesiastical office. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. A sculptor? A sculptor? Yes, yeah. that Oh, yes, in the back of your Zoom yeah. uh, frame, there's a hand that looks like it might be about to grab you or something. There's a lockdown project here. Very good. Normally the questions come after the talk, by the way. Just, just, <laughs> that's just, but we don't have to follow traditions, um, uh, which is fine. So um, why don't I pray for Rob, and then we'll hand over to him, and he can talk to us about bishops. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Rob, for his ministry over many years in Cheadle and in all these other um, extra parochial roles that you've given to him. Thank you for his care and diligence in all of those, uh, in trying to make a difference for the gospel in each of those levels of the Church of England. Please help him now as he speaks to us. Give him clarity of thoughts and communication as he explains to us and talks to us about bishops uh, what that means biblically and in the Church of England. Give us open hearts and minds to receive what he says, to understand it, uh, and also stir up questions that we might uh, have a good time of clarifying our own understandings and misunderstandings about things uh, in this regard. So I pray that you'd be with us, guide our thoughts and our discussions this afternoon on this subject. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Rob, I'm going to hand over to you. I'm pressing go on my recording device so we all know what you're saying. The talks will eventually find their way onto the Church Society website and SoundCloud 
and those sorts of things. There we go. Nice to be here. And the nice thing about being up first is that I can then relax and everybody else can be under great strain. Um, but anyway, good to meet you. And do um, uh, introduce yourselves if I don't know you. And if you do, then I'll have words about ratting on me about playing computer games, which is what Skyrim is. Um, but anyway, uh, this is a trustworthy saying, says Scripture. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, an episcopos, uh, desires a noble task. We're going to be thinking about a passage a bit later on. But um, if you ask most bishops um, what adjective to do to describe their task, um, I'm not sure they'd pick noble. I've heard impossible, onerous, exhausting, but not necessarily noble. Uh, bishops, of course, do have um, an element of uh, uh, aspiring nobility. It is one of the few roles to figure on a chessboard, after all. Uh, although why they're defined by moving diagonally might be an interesting discussion, which, of course, has been had on Quora, uh, that says, we decided that bishops, being religious men, did not have a straightforward way of thinking. <laughs> that is the consensus on Quora. Um, however, if it's a noble task, maybe we should discern what that task is. Now, I'm conscious I'm effectively opening a conference exploring roles, offices, and relationships in the household of God, in a way, from the bottom up which is not how the world or church or even some bishops see it, but it is the implication of Jesus' most explicit teaching on leadership spiritually. In Matthew 23, you're not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master and you're all brothers. Don't call anyone father, because you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Mark picks out how far you serve, because if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. The organisation of Christ Church, from his point of view, has at its heart a radical understanding of leadership that is actually the opposite of what most people assume, rejecting the common assumptions that leadership is an expression of autonomous power. I'm in charge and tell you what to do. Actually, Jesus calls for people to be ordered by way of loving service. If you wash all their feet, then you have a qualification um, in doing that. And church order, in that sense, to coin the phrase, is not so much about hierarchy, it's about lowerarchy. It's how low can you go as we serve. And the ones who serve more are the ones that we ought to honour more, according to Jesus. And the roots of this reversal are actually reflected in the order of the responsibilities in the way that creation is. Um, so to be human is to be in an ordered network of loving, responsible relationships. We're defined in Scripture, by who we're responsible to, whether God or other people, and who we're responsible for, um, and the ones that we oversee and look after. We're to relate to God in loving obedience. We're responsible to him as his image bearers. And we're to be fruitful and rule the creation he's entrusted to our care, Genesis 1.28. We're to honour the boundaries that he sets, so not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. And we're to relate to the world, so um, not to God under, in obedience, but to the world as its stewards. We're responsible for it, um, to work for its welfare, to work it, and to care for God's garden, Genesis 2.15. And even in the dynamic relationships of humanity itself, in his image, we relate slightly differently. We can be distinguished equally in God's image, yet with different sorts of responsibilities, uh, the calling of the man to name uh, in creation and his wife, 
at least some sort of responsibility there for his wife. While the woman stands in relation to the man, having a responsibility coming from him, Genesis 2.23, called to help him, 2.18, while still being in profound union with him, in Genesis 2.24, one flesh. And if you've ever wondered why the Bible's obsessed with genealogies, I think it's because of this. Because it's where we stand in relation to our responsibilities, who we're responsible to, who we're responsible for, that we find our identity, our heritage matters because of our responsibilities. So so it seems to me that from creation, this idea of carrying oversight responsibility, if you like, is embedded in who we are. It's part of what it is to be human. Um, And understanding the dynamics of that, I found quite helpful, uh, helpfully reflected in a a theology of John Frame, his theology of lordship, which is in various different books. But he establishes um, leadership or oversight, as having three interconnected dimensions. He talks about it as having, uh, first, uh, control. That's about the power or might God has in exercising his will. It's effectively what you can do. What can you get done is, is, um, uh, and when applied to human leadership, it goes under the label, you see where I'm going with this, it goes under the label of jurisdiction. It's what you are called to do, and you can get done. The area responsible for, where our will is enacted, where the boundaries of our decisions um, can be um, brought about, the norms that we have, and we make that difference. But it's not just power, it's also about authority, which is the mandate. God has the right to rule us. He doesn't just have the power. It's not just that he pushes us to do it. He also has the right as our creator, as our father, uh, in our love. And that right to call is the order we have, that we stand in relationship to him. Uh, and so that other word, order, will come into the discussions a bit later on. We are people who are responsible to others and responsible for others. We're responsible to God and for others. It's a situational authority. And we all stand in that network of relationships. And the third dimension Frame brings out is about presence. One of the distinctions about Christian leadership is saying that actually the calling, the commitment that God has when he exercises his will with authority and with control is that he does it with us. He does it as himself. It's about character or context or the way in which we conduct our relationships. In other words, it's not enough just to have the right to do it and the power to do it. It's the way you do it that matters as well. Because God, being who he is, rules in that selflessness of his love. He chooses to lead so that we can flourish. So that we, um, though we have no right to it, are become beneficiaries of his grace. So his rule is interwoven with this different way of leading than our culture has not just about power not just about authority but about sharing the life of those that we have responsibility for and to and so from the even the creation mandate for example to rule and fill the earth expresses the jurisdiction human has the boundaries that we have we've got to steward the world it gives us our authority to express as god's image into the world multiplying god's image is that call and at the presence, we're in the middle of it, in the dynamic of human relationships. Similarly, in the marriage mandate, the one flesh union of good man and woman has a jurisdiction in that naming and helping thing. It has an authority to leave and cleave from one part of the family to another, and their presence in the one flesh union. 
And so this application of human responsibility to and for each other in family life is really why I think it is appropriate to look at these contexts as a household, and that's why we're doing it, because that's the picture Bible gives us of how best to lead. And the dynamics of the household are different than just um, being in government, because it has the dynamics of love at the heart, it has relationships uh, with responsibilities in the midst. And that first application, of course, um, develops in the Old Testament in the way that it's damaged by sin and distorted. And, you, know, the, you know the progression through Genesis, in Genesis 3.16, where ruling replaces serving in the curse on marriage relationships, in Genesis 4.9, where autonomy replaces family. You know, am I my brother's keeper? You know, do I have any responsibilities? No, I'm abrogating them. Um, and indeed, in the family headship, a bit later on, Lamech, who says, I'm going to kill somebody for injuring me, you know, that, that breakdown of responsibilities is there. But the primary expression of leadership throughout the early part of the Bible, of course, is family. It's still patriarchal leadership. It's still in the family unit that we see leadership exercised. And even when those families unite to become a nation and roles and orders from God develop, it's still defined in this way. Who are you responsible to? Who are you responsible for? What difference can you make? What order do you stand in the relationship to others? Now you're in the midst. So priests do it. They're responsible to God for worship, but communicate grace through the administration of the sacrificial system. Or the prophets do it. They're responsible to speak what God gives them and to make sure the people heed it. Kings do it, who are ruled to rule faithfully, but to responsible to God and provide for the people. So those three dimensions of jurisdiction, oh, model by family, jurisdiction, order and character are going to be at the heart of understanding this. Who are you responsible under God to oversee? Who are you accountable to under God? Who directs you? And who are you living with and consistently to your call and responsibilities? So those, with that sort of little bit of a foundation, where do bishops fit in? Okay? Why do we have them anyway? Jesus didn't appoint any bishops. He did, of course, appoint apostles in the New Testament. They were given power by the Holy Spirit and authority to com- uh, by his command to be witnesses of his life, death, and resurrection, tasked to bring in the new covenant people of God, to lead and govern them, symbolically described by Jesus himself as being seated on the 12 thrones, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight and Luke twenty-two thirty. They're the foundation of the truth on which the church is built, and equipped for this task by the Holy Spirit, and that's back in John 16, you remember where um, the Holy Spirit is given, I'll bring these things back to your mind. And their names are pictured in Revelation as being on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. Uh, So their order, of course, was therefore to provide that foundational leadership of the church, and that's what's described in the scripture. But their jurisdiction was to rule through Jesus' word and to do it in Jesus' way. With that character. Of course, they then appointed deacons. In Act 6, the administration of the needs of the church grew. The priority of the ministry of the word was there and prayer. That was suffering. So, ordered by the apostles with the support of the church, deacons had a jurisdiction to meet practical needs in the church, modelled on the selfless service of Christ. But um, it was not just growing practical needs that needed addressing. And there were growing spiritual needs too. It's interesting that those deacons, Philip and Stephen, particularly end up being profiled in the Bible, not so much for their deacon work, you might say, but for their evangelism um, and their ministry. 
And that's as new churches grow, the spiritual needs multiplied and elders were appointed. For example, as early as Acts 11.30, it seems that the new church followed the pattern of synagogues. And those were ordained by the apostles, so they were given the authorization. You've got that little weird experience where um, Peter comes up to check that um, the uh, early church was still sound when there were people following the baptism of John. And um, there was an ordination process that they were under the apostles, but they had their own responsibilities for congregations. They were to communicate the character of Christ and the word of God. And these presbyters are seen in the New Testament as absolutely essential for the growth of the church. They were its pastors and its teachers, Ephesians 4.11, responsible for preaching God's word and ruling in directing the congregation in 1 Timothy 5.17. They're always in the plural, which implies, like in the synagogues, that more than one elder would usually be present. That would be consistent as the early church took their cue for organising that way. So here we have apostles, elders, and deacons appointed in the New Testament. Um, but the New Testament may have episcopae, but they're equivalent to presbyters. The adjective episcopal comes from episcopes, but um, in the New Testament, when Paul gives those detailed instructions in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 to 7, for example, the term is used interchangeably with presbyteros, presbyter or priest traditionally in the Church of England. And similarly in Titus 1, verses 5 and 7, the two words are used of the same people. Or in Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, they're functionally interchangeable. So does that mean actually we're not being biblical then if we have bishops? Now if you ask the scholars of this last hundred years, um, they would say, well no, you're not being biblical, but the early church was pragmatic. Um, because overseers, there became a lot of them, and then they started disagreeing, and somebody had to take charge. Heresies grew up, and you needed people who could combat them. And to describe some sort of continuity with the apostles, as the people who ordained, they needed some other people to ordain, as the apostles all died out, and you couldn't leave it all to one. So it's pragmatic reasons that the church developed them. The interesting thing is, if you look in church history, that doesn't look like pragmatism, because from the very earliest days of the post-apostolic age, all the churches seem to have developed this threefold order of bishops, presbyters, and deacons. So Ignatius, who was martyred in 110 AD, writes in his several letters, he sort of went on a journey to Rome before he was killed, and basically wrote to elders... And presbyters, um, but to bishops, singular, a bishop, in each of the congregations as he went through the ways. And in various of his letters, he names them. He knew who they were. They weren't just a little team. And so the traditional argument, beyond the last hundred years, is that bishops are biblical, at least from the scriptures. So, for example, Timothy and Titus are not apostles in a formal sense of being appointed by Christ for that ministry. Yet, Paul calls them individually to ordain ministers across various congregations in a region and gives them responsibility for disciplining them. That looks a lot like a bishop. 
Or in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council of Apostles and Elders, James, the brother of Jesus, gets this singular distinctive role in convening and deciding the issue that the Jerusalem Council are wrestling with. He gets the primary mention when Paul returns in Acts 21:18 from missionary journeys. It's James and the elders who greet him. Remember, a bunch of apostles were still hanging around there at the time, but James has an order in the church that's recognised over other responsible people. And the fan traditional argument, you may find harder to grasp, but it was there for a long time, and that is in Revelation. In uh, the letters to the churches, it addresses the angel of the church, the angel singular of the church of Laodicea, Ephesus, and so on. Um, And the traditional understanding that Calvin and others do this is that they're addressing at least a representative of the church, but probably the overseer, the bishop, the singular bishop of the church in in view. Why would you think that? Well, why would a bishop rather than a spiritual angel, which is what most modern commentators go with? Well, just think about what John says he was commanded to do. Jesus tells him to write a letter to an angel. Have you ever tried it? If I asked you to write a letter to an angel, where would you address it? Much less the postal service, you've got to send a messenger. You know, it would, it would seem to be a strange command. And besides that, given that the commands within those letters, I'm sure you've all preached them a million times, but at least in a couple of those letters, the angel of that church is called to repent. For example, in, in Ephesus, um, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, how do you command an angel of God, who presumably hasn't sinned, to repent. And it's clear that actually something's going on that doesn't make clear sense of it being a spiritual angelic being in the presence of God. So um, traditionally, it looks like a singular representative or delegate with that. But the point is simply this, that the early church, the scriptures themselves, have these figures who have oversight over other presbyters. So presbyters to presbyters has a biblical precedent and it gives that biblical warrant for why universally the earlier church adopted it because you'd have thought if it was not something that was apostolic some churches would have looked very different in the way they developed I mean look what happened to the reformation when they weren't sure about this actually the different ways of leading churches led to all sorts of different patterns of church leadership but not in the first hundred years of the church And so, far from being a pragmatic response to heresy, it appears that this is a biblical principle receiving greater application. The apostolic expectation was that their successors, at least insofar as ordination, of guarding the faith, of overseeing other presbyters, would fall on individuals who we came to call bishops. And because it's their jurisdiction, so in order, it's not a different order, it's a jurisdiction to pastor pastors, they have a responsibility that others don't share, but they still have the same responsibility that a presbyter shares to preach the word. It's not a different order. It's a different jurisdiction, that shared responsibility to ordain, to discipline, to ensure the truth and faithfulness of other presbyters. They have the same order, a ministry of the word and prayer, but given the jurisdiction over others. 
They are responsible for other presbyters who in turn accept their responsibility to them in the ordering of the church. And so they're guardians of the apostolic ministry, who, who, the ones who initiate ordination and training, disciplining and um, sharing it with other presbyters. So if we are right to have other bishops now, and I think we are, um, what are they? Well, looking at that biblical material, it's worth saying that what shaped the Anglican Reformation um, was the understanding that this principle was apostolic in origin but had a practical application. And so at the Reformation, for both biblical and historical reasons, the church first affirmed the continuity with the Catholic Church about the orders of having a bishop because it was a faithful application of what scripture had to say. It wasn't a papal uh, heresy that had been introduced. Um, If the apostles laid the foundations for bishops and wanted us to have them, we should keep them. Of course, there were more radical Puritans that challenged because of the lack of explicit biblical warrant for the rock. They're not in the New Testament like presbyters and deacons are. But... In England, it was that more holistic biblical theology that proved that bishops were necessary rather than, you might say, a reductionist biblical literalism that said if you can't find it literally, then we can't have it. (coughs) Yet because of that explicit lack of biblical warrant, um, the Elizabethan settlement affirmed that the ministry of bishops was only as consecrated presbyters not as a new order. Presbyters set apart with a jurisdictional difference, but not an order difference. And so if you look in the prayer book, the ordinal has the ordering of deacons and the ordering of priests, but the consecration of bishops. That was important for reasons that are lost on us in a way, because they wanted to combat the Pope's claim that he had a different order above and beyond even bishops. So if bishops had one order, he was the bishop of bishops. And they would say, no, there are no other orders than the ones instituted by Christ in his word, presbyters and deacons, but actually the jurisdictions of those change. And the question is, should the Pope have jurisdiction in England? Answer, no. We know that one from your articles. There we go. So while different bishops have different jurisdictions, their ministry, by by the way, jurisdiction in application is about the legal boundaries. What can you do lawfully and what can't you do? The order of their office was to be honoured. In fact, the order of every presbyter is to be honoured throughout the whole of Christ's church. Their accountability for ministry is to Christ and his word and not to the Pope. So the priority of the bishop as a presbyter of presbyters was reaffirmed and uh, asserted its more pastoral nature against what it had previously been. Prelacy, which is one of those words I never really understood till I started reading all these books. But the um, revised prayer book ordinal prioritises not just um, the power of a bishop, but that they should do ministry faithfully, they proclaim God's word faithfully, that they have pastoral care and discipline in their calling. Martin Davey, actually I left this tome at the beginning, of course, beginning of this month, produced this definitive book, (laughs) Bishops, Past, Present and Future. And if you want to plough through, you know, you can get a much better view of this talk 
from the 850 pages of the book. There you are. That's a good doorstop. But anyway, he says this, and I think he's right. Um, These stipulations mark a deliberate return to biblical patristic view of the bishop's role. Bishops are not to be primarily feudal magnates or judges, but teachers and pastors. So the continuity of bishops wasn't bishops as they used to be. No, we're going to bishops in the way the Bible envisaged them, is what they said. Not expressions of power, but actually the same order of other presbyters, but with a jurisdiction over them. However, Martin Davy also observes a significant shift in this justification for bishops in the 20th century, and obviously into this century. In the light of biblical scepticism, he wrote this, Church writers have ceased to say that the church should have bishops because the episcopacy was instituted by the apostles, acting on behalf of Christ. What they have argued instead is that the church should have bishops because of the key role the bishops play in the life of the church. These days, bishops are being defined more by their roles and function than their inherited jurisdiction from the Lord. It's more focused on what do we get them to do rather than what they do for the gospel. So if you argue that bishops, in a sense, are an add-on beyond what scripture envisaged, because a job needed doing back in the first century or second century, then you have a different argument to what you can do with a bishop today. If they're a logical outworking of apostolic truth, you can't mess with them. But if you say that, no, actually, this was just a pragmatic solution to a problem, well, we've got new problems, so we need new solutions. And the bishops defined less by jurisdiction and more by um, actually just the expression of their power. So what today are Anglican bishops for? Well, those who are ordained might have uh, come across this. In the um, prayer book, The Consecration of Bishops, the charge given to a bishop um, before this prayer is that they should focus on their calling, their personal faithfulness to scripture, their personal devotion um, to prayers and study, to resist heresy, to exemplify godliness, to give judicial diligence, in other words, to work hard at doing the right thing, Um, to be faithfully ordaining people and to show mercy to the needy. That's what the charges that are given. Um, And as a sign of their office, the Bible is presented with this prayer. (laughs) If you look at it, it's pretty much what a presbyter does, isn't it? But you do it for other presbyters. Give heed to the reading, exhortation of doctrine. Well, we'd want everybody to do that. Think upon things in the Bible, yeah. Be diligent in them. Uh, Take heed to yourself and doctrine. Be diligent in doing them because you'll save yourself and those that hear you. Be to the flock a shepherd, not a wolf. Interesting, recognising how you can abuse power. Feed them, not devour them. Hold up the weak, heal the sick, bind up the broken, so the pastoral side of it to it. Be merciful, so not, and that you be not remiss. Minister discipline, that you forget not mercy. So you need to do stuff to tell people off, but do it graciously, because you'll be judged for it. Now, These days, that list um, and that focus, which is mainly on Scripture and holding faithfully to it and ministering carefully by it, 
has been replaced by another set of rules. So uh, Paul Avis, who's one of the um, uh, influential theologians on this particular thing, uh, so his book here, Theological Handbook of the Episcopal Ministry, Becoming a Bishop, if you ever want to become a bishop, start there, um, summarises a list of the identity and tasks in that way. A baptised disciple of Jesus, good, you expect them to be a Christian, that helps. A deacon, a servant of others, in other words. Well, we all start off as deacons if you're ordained, that's a good thing. A presbyter, a minister of word and sacrament, yeah, you should do that. A chief pastor, shepherd of the whole flock under his charge. And an overseer, that is that you have responsibility for other churches and people. A guardian of true doctrine, teaching the faith. A successor to the apostles, upholding apostolic doctrine and leading an apostolic mission. Um, And then leader in mission, uh, he would say modelling the five marks of mission, which are now being held up as a sacred addition to the Ten Commandments, I think. Um, We're following uh, those marks. A sign and focus of unity. Ah, so that wasn't in the charge that we just prayed for, but it's there now. A focus of this comprehensive oversight continuity. We'll come to that in a minute. A minister ordination, that's fairly obvious, um, over the College of Presbyters. Martin Davy has his own list, and they sort of correlate pretty much. But he adds in just for fun. Well, working in faithful collaboration. So actually, that's a good thing. So you don't have to do that. Competent administrators, increasingly called for. Um, in a most recent report on um, discerning uh, of bishops, a thing called Discerning in um, Obedience in General Synod GS MISC 1171, it sums up the roles with these offices, priests, evangelists, theologians, prophets, stewards and apostles, but then focuses what those should be about on two foundational aspects. This, this only came out in 2017. It's the thing that they're using um, to help guide the process of appointing bishops. The foundational things are the role of overseer, firstly, a leader who relates to leaders. But the second main focus is the minister of the church's unity, or to, use, to quote them, a sign of the hope that we all share in Jesus' call. Um, And this, it's the minister of unity now that has three aspects that they're looking for for Episcopal ministry. The first is minister of the word, um, in church and in public, both articulating faith in the church, but also in the wider public sphere. I like this quote, so I'll just put it in. uh, In the wider sphere, a prophetic sign speaking forgotten or uncomfortable truths into an impoverished public discourse, a priestly sign acting as God's presence in the community of national tragedies or celebrations, and a kingly sign of authority in a fragmented society, gathering scattered groups to serve a common cause. Actually, nothing there that you couldn't say of a presbyter, to be honest, but it's still good to know that a public role is being called for, the ministry of the word. But then they go on to talk about the ministry of communication, having a shared vision um, at the centre of all the colleagues and employees and volunteers that make up dioceses, so everybody knows what they're doing. And then also this uniting place with the universal. I didn't make up the words, I'm afraid. That's saying you are part of something bigger and you need a bishop to tell you that. You're connected in time and beyond time. It does, you'll be glad to know, also say bishops need the normal moral, theological and administrative qualifications. You're to be above reproach, understand theological complexity and able to make decisions. But this report, I think, reveals 
where the Church of England today is. It tends to emphasise the bishop as the focus and sign of unity. That's the thing that now means most. And it builds on an old commission. The, the phrase came from a 1938 commission on the doctrine of the World Church of England. And it suggested that there were three planes or dimensions to the life of the church. And the key thing here is that the bishop is central in providing each of these three. They're central in uniting the local church in God's word and worship, because you're the one who ordains ministers. So how do you know God's word is going to be faithfully proclaimed? Because that's what the bishop is charged to do, to make sure the local church, therefore, is centred on unity in, in that particular thing. But also unite other churches by the connections and convocations. You're the one who can... Convocations just to the synod sort of things, when people are called together. Um, you're the one who can call people together, connect churches together. So it's not just the local congregation, but the churches all relate to each other. Why? Because they all relate to you, if you're the bishop. So you may hate your person in neighbouring parish, but you both are supposed to submit to the one bishop. See, So you're the centre of the unity of the church. And you're also the centre of the universal church, because it's you that's charged with passing on the apostolic faith and sacraments. You're the ones whose jurisdiction uh, should be recognised across the whole of Christ's church. Uh, sorry, your order should be recognised across the whole of Christ's church, even where your jurisdiction is in an area. So you guard and guide the faith of the church universal and throughout history, the church militant. Now, just as an observation... It's worth noting that there's a problem if you make the bishop the focus of unity. It sounds like the bishop is the one enacting the unity of the church. If you don't have the bishop, it doesn't happen. It sounds like. Historically, it's been the other way around. It's actually been more top-down. The bishop enables and encourages... Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, the... The bishop's the encourager, the enabler of the unity, which is Christ's unity. Our unity is actually in him. The reason we're connected to other ministers' neighbouring is not because we have a bishop. It's because we serve a saviour who has brought his grace to our lives. And the reason that we're connected to the universal church is not because of a bishop. It's because of Christ. It's his church, not the bishop's church. So actually, although it sounds like the bishop is crucial, it's Christ who's crucial in leading his church. And we're accountable to him. It's our union in Christ, our sanctification by the Spirit, and our faithfulness to the Word of God. So bishops can encourage a unity, but it's not their unity, it's Christ's unity. And that's what that phrase sums up. They're not of the essay of the church, the being of the church. You don't have to have a bishop to be a church, but they are for the good of the church, because having somebody who can connect those things together is helpful. But it's Christ who is the heart. Of his church. And if you want historical examples of that, and this just because um, the, the guy who was curate when I was converted has been a great influence on my life, um, uh, ex Bishop Wallace Benn, um, cites his particular passion for Archbishop James Usher. And he argued very strongly for a local servant minded Episcopal ministry. So I thought I'd better give one of his quotes. The essentials of Episcopal government are this 
an appointment of one man of eminent sanctity and sufficiency to have the care of all the churches within certain precinct or diocese, and furnishing him with authority, not absolute or arbitrary, but regulated and bounded by laws, and moderated by joining him a convenient number of assistants, to the intent that all the churches under him may be provided of good and able pastors. A pastor of pastors. And James Usher was saying, actually, that's the way to do it. Get more encouragement, get more enablement of local pastoral ministry. And that's what makes you a good bishop. Not a different order, but a different jurisdiction. And in a sense, the focus of the unity is for mission, for enabling pastors to do mission. So let's tease out some of the details. Um, What is distinctive about a bishop? If they differ in the extent of their responsibility, they order jurisdiction and calling, the greater the leadership, the greater the servant-heartedness that's called. Remember, let's go back to what Jesus said about leadership. This is what it should look like. Well, Lee's going to explore the particular responsibility of Presbyter later, so I'm going to try not to step on his toes. But suffice to say, this distinctive office is to be the presbyter of presbyters. It's not a different um, order, it's a different jurisdiction. It's doing what presbyters do, it's what we should do to each other. But the difference is the bishop is responsible to do it for you, and you're responsible to receive that from them. They do it within legal boundaries. But if it's the office of the presbyter to preach and teach God's word faithfully, it's the office of a bishop to oversee uh, that presbyters do that. And they do that by ordination. That's how you secure faithfulness in a local congregation. You ordain people who are faithful. And then you discipline people who are neglectful to that call. So the relationship must be that there's some sort of accountability to that ministry. Are you faithful to your calling? So the office of presbyters to care for Christ's church, this flock in the local church, it's the office of the bishop to oversee the care of that flock and their presbyters. Lots of bishops make a big claim of this, this is your charge and mine at um, ordinations. All they're saying is that because I have charge of you and you have charge of them, therefore I can oversee all of them. It sounds like I've got a separate power than you. But historically, it's about how do you, who's caring for whom. And overseers, presbyters are part of their flock. And it's the bishop who oversees that flock. Again, if the um, presbyter is to proclaim the gospel in their community, it's the bishop's job to oversee that the gospel is being proclaimed, spurring them on and resourcing them to better do that. If the office of presbyter is to appoint leaders in their congregations... It's the office of the bishop to oversee those appointments of leaders and appoint leaders to their congregations. So I tend to sum it up, and this is just me, I'm afraid, their jurisdiction, their legal responsibilities over churches is, oversee churches is in three areas of doctrine. The first area is to, be, to hold people accountable to be faithful to the word of God. Through ordination, through confirmation, they express a headship, a responsibility to keep the church apostolic. And by apostolic it means apostolic in faith, biblical in faith. I've only used the word doctrine because it comes with three Ds, because the second one is discipline, to hold people to account, to be imitators of Christ in their character, and they do that through visitation, checking up on you, 
and excommunication, getting rid of you. That's what they do. That's their job. Different presbyters can't excommunicate presbyters. Bishops can. And that's how to keep the church holy. How are you going to get rid of what's unholy? Disciplined necessary. And so we submit to their discipline and expect them to do it in Christ for the holiness of the church. And we also look to them for direction. The point is to hold us to accountable to gospel priorities. We all share a great commission to share the gospel, but they do it through representation and mobilisation. They, they speak on behalf. So in the common um, culture, people still listen to bishops, amazingly. They've stopped listening to local ministers anymore, but if bishop says something, it can get reported still. Usually because they say something stupid, but on the other hand they still can get a, a hearing. So they do it as they represent the church to the world, but they're also called to mobilise the church in the gospel to make it a priority and make sure that local churches keep it a priority. That's their apostolic role, to speak for others and connect in service. And that, that means first that they are making sure the church reaches everyone it's not self-serving, but keeps the church Catholic. And secondly, it means that we serve together as brothers and sisters across different churches. That unity prayer of Jesus finds expression in our mission together to keep the church one in its mission priority. And we all have that calling to be in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But bishops have this particular jurisdiction to maintain the church in that calling, upholding its doctrine, maintaining its discipline, and leading its direction. So at this point, let me just mention two other sorts of bishops. Archbishops. Archbishops are just bishops with an extended jurisdiction. Historically, as the number of bishops increased, somebody needed, was needed to convene bunches of bishops. Um, to organise, lead gatherings, and by convention they tended to come from larger cities, metropolitans, and served regions, even nations eventually. But the extended jurisdiction is only in the sense of saying, who installs the bishops? So if, if bishops ordain presbyters who ordained bishops, well, you need somebody to be part of that. Other bishops are involved, but you need somebody to make sure they're approved. So their jurisdiction is to, with regard to installation, Convention, uh, so convening convocations, calling people together, and judging dispute between bishops and, and providing some sort of ministry in vacancies. It's a more moral and organisational, a pastoral sort of oversight, if you like. That's all archbishops are. Um, suffragan bishops are bishops with a delegated jurisdiction, by which I mean that you're doing part of the job of your diocesan bishop, usually within terms that are defined by law, Historically, it was when somebody was too infirm or disabled. You don't stop being a bishop when you're in a wheelchair. And in the ancient church, we had lots of bishops in wheelchairs. Well, they probably didn't have wheelchairs, but they were certainly being wheeled around. They couldn't get out go do the, the job. So they had people to stand in for them, suffragans. But as preferences grew, pastoral ministry became unwieldy. And uh, James Usher's approach is saying, well, actually, let's have lots more bishops then in each deanery to do the job. That didn't take, take, go down very well. Um, so instead of having lots more bishops, we ended up having deputy bishops, bishops with, extended, with a, a delegated jurisdiction. Um, it's all, all quite recent. 
There were no suffragans appointed from the Restoration, from Charles II, through till 1870. It's the first time a suffragan's gone. But now there are 72 suffragans and 42 diocesan bishops, so you can see it's sort of taken off. And they developed mainly for pastoral capacity. How many people can you look after? How many people can a bishop pastor? You've got your own figure. Um, I'm on the Diocese Commission when it comes to looking at suffragan bishops. That one of its jobs is to decide whether a diocese can have a suffragan bishop or not. This isn't a law. This is just a judgment. But the Diocese Commission tends to think that an individual bishop can look after somewhere between 70 and 130 other presbyters. And if you've got more than 130, there's a good chance you'll get another post. And if you've got less than 70, there's a good question about whether you should have the post in the first place. Um, but somewhere in that little me- median. And that's probably what we'd say about pastoral ministry, isn't it? How many in a church can you effectively pastor? Well, if you read the books, it's usually somewhere in that order, around about 100, effectively, before you have to have other staff to help you. <coughs> okay. Um, also, specialisms. Um, I don't think I'll put this up, but anyway, the full range of skills and roles of bishops. These days, suffragans are sometimes employed because of particular contributions in a team. That can be particular expertise. I know bishops have been disappointed because of a need for greater specialism in safeguarding, for example. It may be a particular experience adds a racial or cultural variety to a team. I know of bishops who've been appointed because in a diocese there hasn't been a woman bishop, for example, and a necessity felt. Or it can be the theological conviction as uh, provincial episcopal visitors um, in the, to try and nurture the flourishing of the underrepresented groups of Anglo-Catholics and conservative evangelicals, and that they've had a particular calling to a theological group. But either way, these ministries share the jurisdiction um, with the diocesan. And I just mentioned this because they do it in three ways. You can either be an episcopal curate, just do what the bishop tells you. That tends to make it look like you're not really a bishop. And one of the things we want to say is if you're a bishop, you're a bishop. So they're not great on Episcopal curates, but they do exist still. Um, You could be an area bishop, partitioning dioceses into geographical areas. So you can be pretty much almost all of a bishop in that area, except for a couple of things the diocesan does. Um, They're they're around, I think... um, 20 area bishops at the moment, 52 suffragans, so 20 serve in that area way. And then the third becoming more popular approach is an Episcopal college that is sharing Episcopal ministry more collectively. And again, that may blur who's in charge, but the idea is hopefully you've got a team working together, collaborative ministry, which is a buzzword. I know we're all, if you've been training recently, you've got to be able to be collaborative. So maybe bishops, perhaps two um, and lastly, I'm just whizzing through, sorry, I'm over on, but here we go. What's the future? We are under strain. The church is suffering the greatest decline in living memory. It's rapidly losing its voice in contemporary culture and its moral reputation through scandals. But in two areas, Episcopal leadership has been strained. Uh, one is, I would say, in the debates about the Episcopal ministry of women. There was a problem because the House of Bishops polarised and couldn't decide. First time in a major theological debate, the bishop said, we don't know, what do you think, to the General Synod? And we spent years, and you can argue, this isn't talking about outcomes here, 
process arguing theology with a whole range of different applications meant that the the role of the bishops has been challenged by a rather pseudo-democratic synodical process without their direction. Martin Davy actually in the book has a whole appendix on that just to flag up the issues. Um, The second area I think is what we're in the middle of. LLF has encouraged a process where bishops have silent. What do you think? Let's listen. And who are we listening to? We're listening to pretty much every voice except bishops, aren't we? How many of your bishops have actually stood up and said what they think? Well, one or two have, but mostly they're keeping their heads down at this point in the process. So it may be that they're all going to speak up shortly, I don't know. But I make the point because this process is a new one for the life of the church. And Episcopal ministry is changing. In the last two years, there have been um, several reports that intentionally or unintentionally impact Episcopal ministry. You might want to ask about these, up to you. The emerging church work streams have formed a vision for the Church of England that was not Episcopally led. It was led by focus groups. And it has been Episcopally ratified, but that's an interesting process of development of directing the church to say, what do you think, and let's try and sum it up. The governance review by the Bishop of Leeds has uh, has produced amendments to the role of bishops, or suggested them, particularly for suffragans, to say we need some specialists in the the College of Bishops, The college is all the suffragans and the diocesans. The house is just the diocesans. Um, In the College of Bishops, who can be lead voices on political topics, for example. We need somebody who knows about technology. Let's have a lead bishop on technology. Does it need to be a diocesan? Well, maybe we should have a a suffragan speaking for all the diocesans. Hang on, what does that do to the order of the church? Um, If somebody of a lower order takes authority over somebody of a higher order. Um, the leak consultation for the bishop, from the Bishop of Ely on episcopacy. I have to be careful on this because in the Diocese Commission I've actually seen the report, but I'm just sharing what was leaked. Options like merging dioceses, which will, uh, what do you do with the bishops? Um, non-geographical bishops, well, you've got PVs already, but extending those more uh, across the country. Missionary bishops, who actually don't have a, um, a particular ecclesiastical role, but are more of an outward-facing role, and more Episcopal collaboration. Those all sort of, you know, the, the, the leaks uh, have done that. There are things that are not true in the leaks as well, but those things um, reflect some discussions that are happening. It's only a discussion paper, and it hasn't gone down very well with the other bishops. Reviews on safeguarding and CDM, clergy discipline measure, have proposed amending areas that were traditionally under a bishop's jurisdiction to now be under an independent jurisdiction. Now, lots of us probably say that's good, but it's different It hasn't happened before. Until very recently, bishops were in charge of safeguarding. They're no longer charged to keep the church safe in that way, or not to be the last word. Um, And obvious ones, 
the fractured Anglican communion on the Lambeth Conference and the communion more generally, which is a failure to uphold apostolic faith and unity when bishops can't even take communion with each other across the Anglican communion. And I've also just mentioned synod loves to tell bishops that they should have regard to various things and the amount of stuff that bishops are expected to now look after is vast. Um, And the question is, is that the right way of governing? So I I think I want to do uh, draw stumps there and uh, give time for questions. There's some questions you might want to think about if you can't think of any because that's always a good idea. Is it ever lawful to disobey? So things like that. But one last word. Sorry, I should just give the last word before this to Scripture. What do you do? It's a noble calling but an impossible job apart from God's grace. This is what we can do for our bishops. Obey your leaders. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as many must give an account. Obey them that their work will be a joy, not a burden, because that would be of no advantage to you. There you go. Thank you. I'll leave the questions up. Okay, so Rob's given you a list of all the questions he's happy to answer, <laughs> but you may have other questions too that you, you would rather uh, ask. Tom. Thanks, Rob. Um, in evangelical settings, particularly more low church, what, what I'm about to ask would be um, <laughs> an alphabet, controversial. Is the basic unit of the local church the diocese with the College of Presbyters and the senior presbyter, the overseer, being the bishop. And that's what the local church is. And our congregations are um, franchises of the local church that is the diocese. Um, so the, the biblical answer to that is that it's the, the, um, the, one, the group over which you, presbyters preside is the cell in which... The church is expressed, so um, which in, in the Anglican circle to say the, the the local congregation, but it's it's not the only thing. So you asked what the basis of it is. That organic um, centre builds collectively as well, because churches are not in isolation from one another, and the, and the, so what, what an Anglo-Catholic view of of um, church and diocese tends to start the other way around to send the thing that unites is the bishop, and therefore the bishop unites all of these other groups so the real unity of the church lies with the bishop and therefore the diocese is the church and because they say the bishop is the center of unity but um the problem is that the unity is in christ and that christ how does christ rule his church he rules all of the expressions of congregation so i think um i would say uh, i would say what you're looking at is that the basis basic unity of the church is that over which the presbyter has duty and that's why a bishop is a presbyter of presbyters is not a different order. Um, if if the bishops were a different order, then there would be a different unit in the church. Yeah, uh, come you back. Want to come back yeah. on this? Is that okay? Um, I, I wonder if it's as biblically um, clear-cut as, as you make out, because if I think, what, who is St Paul writing to when he writes to the church in Corinth? I suspect it's not one what we would call congregation. I suspect it's several house churches, we might say, using today's language, but it still has a um, identity, a singular identity as well, which within a generation, maybe two, is 
That wasn't the question you asked. I mean, the, I, I would agree with that. I would, and the same was saying about the revela- in the Revelation, I, I am persuaded, I think, that the angel of the Church of Ephesus wasn't just looking after one congregation. That it, that in that sense, it was a collective thing. But if you were asking the more basic unit of the church, it's a unit, yeah. it, the unit of the church, if you like, the cell that makes the organism, I think, is the local congregation. But, but our problem is that we're individualist in our thinking. I don't think that the New Testament... Well, I know, sorry, I'm going to be more confident than that. I know that the New Testament um, believe passionately in the interconnectedness of the unity of God's people. So every cell is part of a body. And the body, you know, what's the body that you're talking about? You're talking about all in Christ. Um, the danger of taking the diocese as a subset is that it's rather arbitrary to say it's a diocese, or you could say it's a city, or you could say it's a nation, or you could say it's a continent. You know, what's your unit? You're either left with the church universal, that you know, all under Christ, which is traditionally how it's been understood, or you're left with those okay. congregations. So there's another question as well. So, so in a sense, it focuses a bit on that question that you asked there: who speaks to the cult, for the culture, for the church to our culture? Um, so, looking at your those responsibilities of doctrine, discipline, and direction, my observation in Oxford Diocese, where I am, is that all of the bishops are having culture speak to them, and then they're promoting what the culture says and helping the church to catch up, um, which is pretty depressing when you're in Oxford Diocese. But, um, so, so my question on the back of that, I suppose, is who, if, if bishops go off track on doctrine and are no longer teaching doctrine biblically, who is responsible for disciplining them, particularly if the archbishops are... are right. Jurisdictionally, an archbishop is responsible... But judicially, in, in the sense of who, who directs, there are, there are, well, two or three levels at which that's done. The first is that actually, insofar as presbyters ought to be mutually accountable to presbyters, bishops also, even as presbyters, are firstly accountable to other bishops, and secondly to other presbyters, and thirdly, because we're all in the people of God, to the people of God. That means that if you see somebody walking in heresy or straying from the path maybe not full into heresy but on the path to it and um, then it is actually a responsibility of another bishop primarily because they're presbyters or two presbyters and then secondarily to the presbyters under their charge to um to speak to that now um martin davy makes a really good point in his book on this to say that actually we're only ever going to have good enough bishops we're not going to have awesome perfect bishops um, but part of having good enough bishops is that we also need to be gracious enough to recognise weaknesses and, and not jump too quickly to negative conclusions. So we do what the New Testament says in Matthew, which basically says, go one to one, go with two or three, go with the whole church um, in terms of addressing these needs. My experience is it's easier to throw things at a distance and not to get involved. Um, personally, I've, I'm blessed to be in Chester Diocese, which is awesome, it's a great diocese to be, come join us. Um, Part of the benefit of that is that we've had good relationships with our bishops. We've had good communication over theological and doctrinal issues. Um, And if you talk to people, it can make a difference. Now, when you've got all bishops uniting and going astray, you can only do what I think Oxford Diocese Evangelicals do do, which is 
you know, you know privately, I, I don't know how much the private goes. Let, let, I'm assuming it does go on. Have done the private thing. They've done it in the twos and threes, and they're now doing it in collectives that are bigger than that, the DFs. And that is entirely the right way to go. In the end, we, you know, and this is explicit in Scripture in James three, you know, those who lead. Well, it's in Hebrews as well, isn't it? Those who lead are going to be judged more severely. And at one level, God may allow for whatever sovereign purpose um, the church to stray, maybe as a sign of judgment. In the end, they will have to give an account. So we warn them and grieve and sometimes have to suffer. Good. Thank you.